Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you all with us. Uh, Joining me are Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway, as always. Looking forward to a great conversation. Today, we're starting with Elliot. Over to you. Great. Thanks, John. Hello, everyone. So today, I wanted to talk about an idea that I find to be both fun, interesting, and important. And that idea specifically is looking for emerging quality in investments in contrast to established quality. And if there's one identifiable problem I have with established quality, it's the fact that quality tends to be very clear when people see it, and quality that's clear is recognized. In other words, it's priced into the market. So when a quality stock is labeled a quality stock, right then your expectation of above average returns by default goes to average returns, I would say. There are some ways in which you could find, you know, I think some outsized returns in quality and quality stocks to demonstrate, you know, considerable volatility within a year and from year to year. So there are opportunities like tactically, I think, to get above average returns out of quality. But by and large, over very long times, the idea is quality delivers, you know, quality is recognized and delivers accordingly. So first, you know, to talk about emerging quality, I think it's helpful to talk about the traits that uh, are exhibited by what you'd call quality companies. So a few things that come to mind would be persistently high returns on invested capital that are not just persistent, but consistent from one year to the next, right? So it has to be above cost of capital and it shouldn't be volatile. It shouldn't oscillate from one year to the next. The next thing a lot of people talk about are uh, typically very high margins, but in this bucket, I'd add the often overlooked very high capital turnover, right? It could be either or, or some like combination uh, of the both. And here you're looking both in an absolute and a relative sense. But don't forget that overlooked uh, high capital turnover. I've seen some people define quality purely in high mi- high margin terms, and I think you'd miss some interesting uh, companies that I would definitely call quality in that sense. Um, then, you know, often you think about a somewhat fixed cost structure where incremental growth leads to some degree of incremental margin that's above core margin. So I think that's uh, often one thing I associate with quality. Um, Relatedly, growth requires little incremental capital. Typically, you'd want to have a strong management team with aligned interests, though in some ways the beauty of quality is that it should deliver with or without a strong management team. That said, you know, definitely want to check the management box. Uh, then on capital structure, you'd want an appropriate capital structure. I use the word appropriate here because I think there's, you know, different companies require different things. But uh, typically, you know, I'd, I'd say maybe even uh, appropriate skewing in the direction of conservatism because that gives some flexibility in how the company is managed and some resiliency if uh, there's turbulence from some other forces. Um, then you'd want little to no competition or at the very least, very rational competition. You don't want to have players who are, you know, uh, driving price lower or spending profligately to steal customers. Um, and then last, you know, you probably want to have growth that's at or above GDP. And typically this is coming from a persistence of the existing customer base and some modest customer growth. Now, all of these things, you know, are are recognizable. You could identify it. Um, most of these things are, you know, distinctly quantitative in nature. There are certain qualitative elements that, you know, you'd want to use to triangulate each of them. But this is what quality is. But emerging quality, I think, is an opportunity to get, you know, uh, outsized returns. When a company goes from what's considered to be a 
fairly good company to a quality company, there's going to be a repricing in the market that is, uh, you know, it might happen over the course of years or it might happen rather swiftly, but either way, it's going to be something that's above average, above expected and above normal. So, you know, some of the traits that I think of here, you definitely want to have like return on incremental invested capital that's greater than ROIC. So going forward, the the trajectory is that ROICs are rising. So not just persistent and consistent, you want them to be, they could actually be low at this point, but you want them to be rising, going up, going forward uh, from here. You want to have high operating leverage. Uh, I think you, you uh, ideally have uh, secular growth forces where each incremental unit of growth is driving higher margins here on out to a faster degree than is evident in, in what I said above about quality. Um, then, you know, in terms of like these growth forces, you want both the addressable market itself to be growing swiftly, decently faster than GDP, and the company itself to be growing faster than the addressable market. So in other words, the company should be a share gainer to have these signs of emerging quality. And you also want multiple levers to grow. So obviously just, you know, capturing TAM alone isn't enough. You want to have a deepening customer relationship, which means more engagement from your existing customers. So here it can mean like, you know, something like Roku where people are watching more hours a day, or it could be, uh, you know, something like um, Amazon where people are just giving more wallet share each year to what they purchase on Amazon. Uh, now, Amazon is pretty established quality these days, so I'm just using that as an, as an example to illustrate. Um, and you also want to grow the absolute number of customers too. So you have not fully captured the, the mature number of people that will be using uh, the product or service or whatever it may be. Here's what I think is a really important one, consumer surplus um, and an underpriced product. I think this is incredibly important, perhaps the most important one. You want customers to be feeling like they're winning by engaging with you, the company. Um, and I think this is important because it translates both to long-term pricing power, um, you know, which is something that you could use either to drive top line by raising prices, or you could keep competition at bay, or you know, most importantly, you could build towards Nick Sleep's scale economies shared, right? Where, you know, by virtue of longer term, you know, using some of your uh, operating leverage and using some of your scale to keep prices low for consumers or even drive them lower to keep them happier and feel like they're winning every day, even more than they were the past day. In so far as competition is concerned, you want it to be either low or rationalizing. But in today's world, you're often going to face like large platforms attacking the market as well in one way, shape, or form. And I think here there are factors to address on a case by case basis. But like the company itself should have a singular focus around a core essence, and there should be an alignment of interests with whoever the company is servicing. And that's a crucial distinction, uh, area I made a uh, mistake in the past as well. Like you want to make sure that whoever the company's servicing, and you know, oftentimes in today's world, part of why I'm using these terms is like the customer is not the same as the supplier, right? A lot of emerging quality companies might be marketplaces or might be bringing, you know, two kinds of uh, people together as part of the service. Um, you want to have a very clearly defined and articulated problem you're solving for your customer, and you want to know who your customer actually is. So if you are one of these platforms that's uniting like supply and demand, you want to know whether it's the supply side or the demand side that's your most important customer, and you want to build accordingly. And then the last thing I think about is you want a product itself that's not finished and has the opportunity to improve in multiple directions. It should have, like, you know, if you go back to one of our conversations that I was talking about um, from the book Where Good Ideas Come From, exploring the adjacent possible, you want to have a lot of adjacent possibilities, and they should be both horizontal and vertical possibilities. Um, and this is about the product itself, improving the product, spreading its tentacles, and it's about the mandate that the co company has to engage with it, its customers. And, uh, you know, when this is informed by the acquisition of data, like every day the company acquires more data from doing business. And if they could directly deploy that data to the, improve the product, 
that's like even more powerful. So these are some of the things I think about in emerging quality. Curious what you guys think about quality, the opportunity to capture outsized returns in quality itself versus emerging quality, um, and how you think about emerging quality. Yeah, it's interesting. I never thought about it as a as a change, uh, as emerging versus static. I think you're right. It's uh, it's not only having a moment, but I think because once a company is established as having the characteristic defined as quality, it's pretty often priced in. So yeah, I think the the definition that's always made the most sense to me is just a company that throws up one easy decision after another, as contrasted with a company that, you know, just has one agonizing decision after another. And so, you know, again, it gets into an element of Predictability. I mean, predictable's the wrong word for me, just because the world's unpredictable and and no business exists in a vacuum. So no business is predictable because the world is not predictable. But it's just when when something bad happens or when something good happens, the business in question, if it's high quality, has a obvious and attractive, or at the very worst, an acceptable solution. So uh, that's kind of how I've always thought about. It. I mean, some. Characteristics that I've always looked for are more on the qualitative than the quantitative. I mean, I think it goes without saying that there has to be a a high and sustainable return on capital uh, that certainly exceeds its own opportunity cost based cost of capital, and uh, it has to continue over time. I mean, to your point about the volatility, like, I agree. I mean, you don't want it bouncing around like crazy, but it, it doesn't bother me too much if it goes up and down it, it, for for some reason that they can be understandable. But again, it's sort of like the Potter Stewart, Justice Stewart, you know, you'd recognize it when you see it, right? So some things that I look for that I don't think get quite enough attention sometimes are a really deep bench of people, right? I mean, I think it's it's pretty obvious when a, a company, high quality or otherwise, has a really great charismatic CEO or leader or even a really great, you know, C-level executive team. But when you peel back that next layer and you find some relatively anonymous 20 or 30 something working way down in the organization that nobody would have ever had any reason to talk to. And that person just blows you away. That's a really good sign. When you find out that the bench of people is two and three deep so that if somebody were to leave or get hit by the proverbial bus, you know, the next man up would be, would be really good. You know, that's a great sign. Uh, when, when an organization is, is pretty quick and not ruthless or heartless, but what is, is removing bad people or bad fits and always kind of refocusing. I mean, that was the one thing I liked about the the Netflix book is just having that, you know, focus on culture and the high bar. And if if somebody doesn't work, you give them a very generous exit and move on quickly. I think that's a that's a great sign. Um, other things are you know mis, misclassification. So, a company gets lumped in with an industry where it doesn't really belong, you know, and then it people it starts to dawn on people that can be an emerging quality characteristic, I guess, where the business was already already or always quality and is just sort of the world's catching up to it. Um, the industry around it's changing. I mean, I've often seen where uh, an industry is consolidating or an industry that was once hyper-competitive or oversupplied, uh, overcapitalized, and, and just really not competitive or, or overly competitive from an economic standpoint. And that's changing. That can, can lead to some quality characteristics emerging. Um, I think maybe the most common one is just one bad segment or one bad business within a broader business masking the gem underneath it. So that was the source of my single biggest investment and the the single best investment I've made certainly in the last five or six years um, was an exact situation like that. So um, those are the things I would highlight. And it's, it's a good point because nothing is static and and something that's, you know, again, you have to look at it almost in reverse too. If something's quality now, what are you looking for to see that it might be going backwards, right? A disemerging quality, right? Something going the other direction. You have to, you have to constantly be be aware of it. Yeah, I'll share some thoughts. I think it's a great um, kind of thing to look for because that can result in some of the best investments. Um, I think, you know, the kind of the first derivative of the uh, returns on incremental capital, so the change in, in that is uh, is a quantitative uh, thing one can look at. Uh, I think, Elliot, you talked about that. Um, or kind of uh, EVA, the EVA framework, if a company starts kind of 
looking better and better on that. Um, Phil, as you say, uh, multiple segments were kind of uh, either there's an actual um, action to get rid of the uh, the not quality segment or over time, the quality segment simply uh, becomes more and more dominant because it has uh, better growth uh, characteristics uh, usually. Or you have a quality business that is married to a non-quality business um, where basically you shouldn't value that at less than just a quality business without that um, kind of capital-intensive business. I'll give you an example. I mean, if you have, let's say, two hotel operators and um, they're valued the exact same enterprise value, have the exact same uh, asset portfolio, let's say everything is the same except one hotel operator owns all of its hotels, owns the real estate, and the other doesn't, well, the one that doesn't own all the real estate is going to look better on quality metrics. Um, but actually, the one that owns the real estate is the better company because um, it it matches all the quality characteristics. You just have all this excess capital basically tied up that you can uh, get rid of. So sometimes people overlook a good business because it has more than just uh, the good business. Uh, I think you know, sometimes you see a change in company culture as a new management comes in and really wants to shake things up in a positive way. Uh, that can sometimes uh, lead to a change in business quality um, or simply a, a change in business model or focus of a business. I think Naked Wines is a great uh, example on that. Um, another thing that maybe you know, might be worth looking at uh, for some companies is the net promoter score. You know, sometimes uh, that uh, can be a leading indicator of of the quality of the business over time. Um, I think a case study as well, um, Phil, that, you know, you, I'm sure you are familiar with is the airlines and how they basically went from no quality to having quality before COVID hit, hit of course, but they were on a good path. And, you know, I think, Elliot, as you said, part of quality is also the length of the runway and kind of um, how much growth there can be and what the greenfield opportunities are for a business. And that's why some small caps uh, turn out into huge winners and why often maybe the small cap land is uh, uh, the best place to look for that kind of emergent quality. Um, M&A, I think, is usually overhyped. But sometimes it really can change uh, the quality of the business if, uh, if, if it's really a truly um, kind of outstanding transaction that, that just uh, changes the, the model. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I'll close with our favorite example of Twitter, where I, I feel like you really need to have the foundational ingredients of quality in place. And a company like Twitter has that. You know, it's not going to show up on quality screens um, to date, but it has those foundational ingredients in adding a ton of value to its users that's under-monetized at the moment, at, at being addictive, at having people love it, having people feel like uh, it's, you know, a, a really huge value add in their lives. And, and these are people who are not just, um, you know, kind of lower um, lower tier of society. These are people who have a lot of spending power. So when you have those kinds of foundational ingredients in place, I think that's a really great setup if you then also start seeing that the company is actually moving in that direction of executing on quality and focusing on quality in the business sense, not just the product sense. Yeah, I think those are some great examples uh, from both you guys. Really good frameworks. You know, I was trying to focus a little more in isolation on the company itself, but um, both of you touched on themes of like overt change in the business itself, whether it be, you know, compositional change of what they're doing, uh, an emerging sector of quality, new management, um, M&A, 
you know, all those things I think are really important and really interesting angles to explore for where there might be emerging quality. Like, you know, I view change as one of the most important parts of my process, asking what's changing, what's changing in the sector, what's changing in the company. And, you know, to that extent, my greatest successes in investing have been in instances where change is a key key pillar of the thesis and moving in the right direction. Um, you know, to riff off of Twitter, I think change is an important part of that too, because there's an inflection from um, being, I'd call it undermanaged, having a in completely new foundation underneath it beyond, you know, you talk, you spoke, John, to the customer foundation, which I think is incredibly strong, but the technological foundation uh, took years to change beneath the surface. And now here we are and, you know, things get to start looking up as, as you get to capitalize on that. Um, I, I love that you mentioned NPS, John, because that's one of the things I use uh, quite often. Um, that's a strong sign of quality because it both tells you that customer acquisition costs are going to be lower for that business than others. Tells you that churn, you know, whether or not it's a su subscription offering, tells you churn's going to be lower. Their customers are going to stick with them and it's going to be a, a good loyalty situation. Um, so all that plays into every other factor of quality. Um, one thing that I found funny uh, is, you know, John, again, you called out hotels, the vertically integrated one owning their property being the better business. Meanwhile, here we are just, I'd say, you know, three years past, maybe five years past when the major ho hotel companies actually split off their real estate deliberately and purposely to kind of shine a light on the quality of the management side of things. Uh, and created two separate operating businesses out of it. I don't know. I, I don't know what to think. I remember hearing the pitch so strongly that these are now quality companies because they're unencumbered by their real estate. Uh, not sure I know the answer to that, but I find that funny because uh, to the extent that quality is in the eye of uh, the, the beholder, right? Uh, I think different people could focus and isolate um, on different things. But I too often find the vertical business uh, in that sense to be more quality than than the standalone. Uh, again, not sure what I think in the hotels, but those are all interesting examples you guys gave. Yeah, I'll, uh, two points that jumped out at me. One, just uh, on the net promoter score thing, I'll try to find it and send it around in the show notes. Um, you know, I think it, what it's trying to measure is obviously great. When you dig into actually how it works mechanically and what it was originally intended to do, I think it was a Bain consulting project and the guy who originally kind of promoted it and came up with it has now said it's been taken way too far. So I would issue a little bit of a caveat on, on NPS. I think sometimes it's uh, a little bit misapplied. So I think what it's trying to do and the work that you should you know, seek to replicate is super valuable. But when I read like, oh, this company's great just because of the NPS score, I don't really find it all that meaningful, frankly. I mean, I, I guess it could be meaningful if company A has an NPS that's way higher than company B and they're direct competitors. That'll often signal, you know, something meaningful going on underneath the hood. But other than that, I'm not sure that, that uh, I've found NPS to really hold up to you know the kind of rigorous analysis that you that you guys, that you're otherwise doing and wanting to capture here. So, um, and so a good example of that actually is the airlines. I'll take the bait, John. Um, <laughs> so that I, I was thinking of this uh, all along, of course, and I think it it met a lot of criteria. So again, for anyone who hasn't heard this before, uh, my usual preamble here: none of this is investment advice. I'm very intentional intentional about not talking too much about things that I currently own for a whole host of reasons that I won't repeat here. So uh, the airlines now I can talk about quite freely because I sold them over a year ago, right? As COVID was, was coming across the bow and in early March of 2020. So I can look back on it with, you know, no dog in the, in the race and, and hopefully clearer hindsight. So I think where it clearly fails um, and where I'm open to, criticism or acknowledging that it didn't work out or it obviously didn't work out as I'd hoped, but where it, where it clearly doesn't measure up is that it's not the kind of business that throws up one good, easy decision after another. It often throws up hard decision after hard decision. So on that measure, it wasn't quality. It never 
it, it, it was never going to be quality. Um, and it's still not today. I would say it's actually in far worse shape today than it's been at any point in the last 10 plus years on that measure. I would say pretty much every decision the airlines have faced for the last 12, 13 months has been, you know, worse or really, really, really bad, right? I mean, it's just one bad decision after another. So where, where I think it was really interesting a few years ago was I think it was very misclassified. Um, they were basically um, above average industrial companies, whether you looked at them at, you know, at the S&P 500 aggregate level or towards their transportation industrial peers, they were average to above average in every possible way and still considered kind of bad bad businesses as they'd been forever. And what people had really missed were two things. One, that there was now this huge financial consumer marketing business and the loyalty programs that was layered on and that was being mischaracterized. And second was that the industry had changed and that there was the consolidation had eliminated a lot of the excess capacity and the bad the bad supply in the industry and taken out a lot of the actors that just didn't need to be there. So you had a bad business, you know, kind of a perceived bad business being over overshadowing a really good one. Um, you had a, a misclassification of what the business really does. You had an industry that had changed for the better in a major way. And then, you know, the, the, the people that I met at every level of the company, I think you'd be shocked or most people would be shocked at just how good um, airline management has become and how rigorous and data-driven and rational it really is. And uh, I think if you compared it to a lot of companies that are supposedly very high tech or software oriented, or, you know, they're just happen to be growing, frankly, I think you'd be stunned at how much smarter and more rigorous the work that's done at the airlines really is. But again, I think the lesson, if there is one on the downside, is just that uh, because of some of the fixed cost nature, fixed versus variable costs in the business, that, that you're never going to completely eliminate the, uh, the substitutability of, of the core product and, uh, just a whole host of factors that make it just a, a somewhat difficult business. So, yeah, well, I'll you know highlight John Rainey, the CFO of PayPal, is like an awesome person. He came who came from the airline world uh, from United, hmm. and I was extremely yeah. impressed. That's um, true. So you're contrasting, you know, like the tech and and the airlines. Here you go, is someone from airlines making a meaningful contribution at a technology company in very interesting ways. And I think he's had pretty smart approaches. If you look like beneath the surface, some of the things he's done to kind of like tweak around pricing levers they have uh, on funding instruments and on actual like um, payment options, he's he's been pretty brilliant. Um, I think you also made like, I, I'd call what you said about NPFs a caveat. And I think you're 100% right. It has to be used in a relative sense. Like you can't, say like the NPS of company A versus company B in completely different sectors has any relevance. But if you are by far the highest NPS and you're given uh, vertical in your, in your like closest competitive set, that's a distinct advantage. It's effectively saying your customer acquisition cost is much lower. So you have more that you could spend on, whether it be R&D or really just you know driving lower price for your customers. Um, that's wouldn't you wouldn't you say though you could just go try to measure the customer acquisition cost? I think that's probably my second biggest criticism of it is it's just trying to when they when they don't capture enough detractors or when the detractors aren't really in the sample size, it just becomes kind of a meaningless number. So I think it's trying but to it put depends, a very, right? Sure, you can't exactly. Just that's spend, the point. Like your cat yeah. could be exactly equal from one company to the next, but one is confident they have a ten year LTV and the other is not so sure they have a five year, right? For sure. So I think that gets to the point, right? Is that the whatever the number is, is only as good as the inputs and assumptions behind it. And I think in more cases than people are really aware, the inputs and the assumptions in NPS aren't really all that valid. But again, if you can find an apples to apples comparison between two light companies and one has an NPS that's just way, way higher than the other, then that's a good place to start looking to see if that's really valid because chances are it is. And by the way, one thing I'd add is like, you don't need NPS itself as like, you know, a trademarked metric or whatever. What you could do is surveying work on your own independently, asking the kind of questions that would inform uh, someone in a decision-making position what exactly. you know, the true uh, customer sentiment is like and the relative customer sentiment is like. And I think that's one of the most powerful like resources we have at our disposal. It's no wonder 
you know, and I think Tiger Global was like a seed or, or like a Series A investor in SurveyMonkey and has held the shares ever since. Um, that company makes a lot of sense for someone in that position to be uh, both a really large customer and an owner capturing some of the economics. Yep. Um, and then, you know, one thing I loved that you said, Phil, is these companies with one good, easy decision after another. I mean, I've fallen into the trap of some companies that have hard decisions. And, you know, I mean, I think it gets to this idea that there's there's no company that you're just viewing over a time period. There's like many short time periods that add up to a long-term time period. And there are many decisions that you face at different junctures. So there are some companies who, you know, when COVID hit should have been like stepping on the pedal and leaning into opportunity. And there are other companies that should have been retrenching and every company faces different decisions. But the first decision you make at some key junctures, there's a path dependency that follows from them. And if you make one wrong decision, it tends to lead to a worse decision tree and further bad decisions. So, you know, the more easy decisions you have, like the the less likely you end up on, on a decision tree path that, that could lead you down sliding doors where you're like, I wish I had done that instead. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. I think that's that's a really interesting, important one. Though that's not to say there are some companies uh, who face hard decisions that I, that I wouldn't put in the quality bucket. I think that just makes it a little easier to get it right. Yeah, I think, and that's a good point. I mean, look, I think there are companies with elements of quality, but don't check all the boxes. I mean, I don't know of any company that checks every box you'd want in this in this area. And, and and again, there are companies where, like the airlines or whatever, where I could see saying, okay, yeah, this, this business doesn't throw up one easy decision after another. It actually faces a lot of hard decisions. Um, but there's such a there's such a disparity between the perceived quality and what I think the real quality is or the perceived value and the real value, right? Because that's really ultimately what we want as investors. So I I am not averse to going and hunting around in businesses that the rest of the market or, or most analysts would say are not quality. Because if you can still find a, you know, again, it doesn't have to be like an old school, like net net kind of hunting through garbage and cigar butts kind of strategy. But if you can find businesses where the gap is enormous between real and perceived quality or real and perceived value, and it's in your favor. So long as it continues to be in your favor and you're not wrong, I mean, that's that's what we're all looking for, right? And so, in my opinion, a lot of times it's easier to find companies where that gap is big and in your favorable when you're not hunting amongst all of the trendy, most popular, you know, high-growing unicorn compounder bro type companies, right? And it relates directly to our conversation of, you know, in essence, if you want to find these like really great returners over a long period of time, you want companies who have much lower multiples, right? Our conversation last week, you're not going to get the the truly great like 20-year companies um, by starting with really high price to sales. You're going to need some sort of price to sales uplift. Um, and so to that, to that extent, you're going to be looking at companies that have some fleas. And so maybe parts of emerging quality are just the ways you could kick out, you know, pick away one flea after another and effectively de-risk uh, more so than just make things better in an absolute sense. Yeah, and I think, you know, every business I feel like has some KPIs or metrics that apply uniquely or almost uniquely to that business that kind of could help you recognize emergent quality before it's obvious in kind of the headline numbers. Um, you know, and Elliot, I think you you talked about this, but let's say a subscription-based business. I mean, if you the the renewal rate would be super important, and there's a huge difference between an 80% renewal rate and a 95% renewal rate, um, you know, the, the one with the 80% renewal rate could actually make up for that through like really good marketing or customer acquisition or whatnot. And so the headline numbers may look fine, but actually, you know, an 80% uh, renewal rate means a five-year uh, customer life and 95%, that's a 20-year so that's a huge difference. And I feel like you want to kind of find those key metrics within each company and track those really closely to see, is anything meaningful uh, changing there? 
Yeah, I'd give I give a good. Go ahead, Phil. That's right. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say. I think that's exactly right. It gets back to my my point earlier about NPS is where I wouldn't want to take NPS's word for it. I'd do exactly what you just said, John, which is you go out and you talk to the customers and you survey the customers. And for a subscription business, let's say, of course, you'd want to look at what the historical churn has been like, been like. But then you'd go out and kind of marry it up with some survey data too, and say, okay, if there's a recession or there's a problem or whatever, how likely are you to drop this? subscription and the service from your life. And if everybody says, oh, I can't live without it, and the data marry that up, then say, yeah, they, they certainly stuck with this through thick and thin, and it's growing, whatever. That gives you some pretty good confidence that that's going to continue to be the case for the company, and it's going to throw up one easy decision after another, and that there's going to be a lot of market share for them to take, and they're going to grow over time. And that's that's exactly what you want. And I don't frankly know anybody that doesn't look at it that way, but it's it's probably a small segment of the market that actually goes out and does that work, right? Sorry, Elliot. Go totally ahead. agree. I just wanted to offer an example, I think, that helps illustrate this in a way to kind of think about it because I often find that helpful. Um, PayPal, when they went about their uh, consumer choice strategy and struck partnerships with Visa MasterCard, specifically what they were looking to do um, was make customers happier with the product. And as an outcome, growth in the customer base, active users accelerated. And, you know, a lot of people would ask them questions like, so why, why is active users, user growth accelerating? They were acquiring the same number of customers, but churn was going way down, right? So to your point, John, about the 80 versus 95% retention, like churn was going way down. And in the process of churn going down, user growth goes way up, right? There, there are two ways to attack the same problem. And I think that's interesting and important. And, you know, they had told people at the time in 2016 when they announced these partnerships, hey, you know, we A-B tested this in the UK market and we know our churn's going to go down, but people didn't believe them. So there's often a lag with which some companies put things forward that they think and they know could drive uh, some of these forces and people don't pick up on them. So that's just another way to find opportunity in the market about it. It took like a full like two years for the company to prove that what they, you know, had theorized was was actually indeed true. Great. Well, uh, let's uh, move on to our second topic. Uh, Phil, I'll turn it to you. Thanks, John. And Elliot teed this up perfectly for me, so I don't even need to uh, introduce it very well. Because as he said, if you're going to have a really good uh, long-term result, you need to have all the things that, that he lined up there. And then what he mentioned right there at the end, which is kind of a starting point that's that's reasonable from a valuation perspective. So uh, I, I unfortunately can't remember where I saw this. I, I apologize for not giving the, the proper credit where it's due. Somebody on Twitter posted a screenshot of it, which just reminded me of it. So you can you can all do it yourselves on anything you like. But somebody pulled down the top 50 performing publicly traded stocks that were continuously in existence from April 2006 through April of this year, so the last 15 years. So to set a baseline for that, it's 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 worth doing. What do you guys think off the top of your head? What do you think the S and the S and P and the NASDAQ and or the Russell 2000, any of any or all of the above, what do you guys think they did per year over that 15 year period? You got a guess. So you mean the, the Kager and the S and P NASDAQ and yeah, Russell the, the, over the last 15 yeah. years? Yeah, exactly. The total return you got by owning those over the, over the last 15 years. So this would have been through like last week. So from, 2006 through last week. So you're starting pre-crisis. Exactly. Um, the interesting thing is you're starting pre-financial crisis, going down through the financial crisis, roaring out of it, going into the COVID pandemic and now coming out of it. I'm going to go 12% S&P. So 12% Kager in the S&P. And we're talking total return. So I'm thinking with yep. dividends here. Uh, right. I'll go 16% uh, NASDAQ. And let's see, my brain wants to say that the Russell um, lagged all, so like 10% total return Russell. Yeah. John, you way off or what do you think? Uh, I don't know that I have a real good take on this. If I can. All right. Well, it's yeah, you're not going to do a whole lot better. better. Elliot was, was very, very close. I mean, the S&P was actually just over 10 um, and I'm a, these Bloomberg data include dividends. I'm almost positive. So um, the Nasdaq was 16, which All is right. just a, 
just a stunning performance, right? You almost nailed that. And you're correct. The Russell lagged both of them um, by quite a bit at just over nine. But that gives you kind of the base rate for what the public markets did at a broad level. And it, it it's hard to find a better 15-year period in all of history than that period. But it's amazing that out of roughly 3,000 public companies that have existed uh, in the U.S., listed and headquartered in the U.S. Uh, on, the, on the major exchanges over that 15-year period, if you take just the top 50 of them, so that's the top 50 out of 3,000, uh, the cutoff to make that is just under 20%, which really isn't, I mean, it's a big difference. Don't get me wrong. I mean, four points over 15 years is a ton, um, but that's a big difference between the the index, the NASDAQ, and, and these individual companies. So it's pretty amazing. So the, the 50th best company uh, returned about 19.7% a year through for those 15 years. And the number one company returned an unbelievable 38.7% a year uh, over that period of time. It went from a starting market cap of a billion and a half to an ending market cap of almost $250 billion over that period. Now, sales went from under a billion to 30 billion. So sales also grew at 25% a year, but with sales growing at 25% a year, which is unbelievably awesome in and of itself, it's been almost 40% a year total shareholder return. The company didn't pay any dividends, by the way. You had to have some pretty good uh, multiple expansion. And sure enough, the uh, price to sales multiple went from a pretty reasonable 1.6 to a much more robust 8.1. I'm sure you guys can guess which company this is, right? It was Netflix. I think everybody uh, knows that they've they've probably been the, the biggest winner over most periods of time. But the interesting thing that I found here was was a couple of things. If you look at all of these companies that ended up as the big, big winners in 2021, look back 15 years ago from the starting point in 2006, um, there were 26, more than half of them had a starting market cap under a billion, right? And, and almost by definition, the math would make it pretty hard. Not a single one of them is under a billion dollar market cap today. But way back then in 2006, only four of them had a starting market cap over 10 billion. And now only 11 of them have a market cap under 10 billion, right? So again, the math just kind of takes over. You go from small to very large in a big hurry over 15 years when you're compounding at that kind of rate. And there are now, of course, two of them uh, that are over a trillion. So Amazon actually checks in at number three, starting market cap of 16 billion ends up at 1.6 trillion. Uh, sales over that time period went from a smooth uh, 10.7 billion to 475 billion. Uh, so that's an interesting one because the sales growth rate of almost 30 almost matches the investment IRR of 34. Um, so the the price to sales multiple there only went from one and a half to three and a half. So it didn't didn't go up quite as much. Uh, but interestingly, uh, out of the 50, there were only two where the price to sales multiple declined. And again, you know how I feel about this. I, in terms of valuation, doesn't tell you anything. Multiples are a shortcut and a proxy. It's a pricing exercise, not a valuation exercise. We're not actually estimating future cash flows and discounting them back, et cetera, et cetera. But price to sales multiples are interesting because it ignores margins. It ignores capital structure. It ignores all that stuff. And it just gives you a pure look at what investors are valuing a dollar of sales at. And so uh, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, a really interesting company at number 12, uh, compounded at almost 26% a year over that 15-year period, while the price-to-sales multiple went from 13 to 4. So it totally collapsed, and the stock was just a generational home run because sales went up 42% a year. <laughs> so it went from sales that barely existed, 63 million 15 years ago, to 12 billion today. So that's, that's one way to do it. Uh, the only other one where the price to sales uh, multiple actually declined and it barely declined. It started at just over eight and ended at just under eight. So just a tiny a tiny dip of Salesforce. Uh, another generational home run. Sales went from 4 billion to 204 billion. <laughs> and uh, so that's a 30% compound annual growth rate, which actually exceeds the, the, the total return of the stock at 23 percent and change. But every single other company had multiple expansion. And uh, to your point, Elliot, just a minute ago, uh, there were actually at the beginning of this race in 2006, only six companies with a price to sale over, sales ratio over five and only two over 10. And now if you look where they are today, 
the six that started at five or higher, there's now 36. So two-thirds of the company in the sample are trading at over five times sales. And uh, there are 16 of them that are now at over 10 times sales. And uh, so obviously, uh, just the simple math of it would make it very, very difficult for those uh, valuations and just outright size companies being that large to continue to return uh, those kinds of, of numbers going forward. So I'll leave it to you guys if you want to uh, chime in and opine on, and guess as to what some of the other companies are. I can I can throw out some of my favorites. But the other thing that struck me as really interesting was I went through and just very crudely assigned each one of them uh, to one of four industries. So this gets back to something we were talking about quality a minute ago. I think assigning industries is really dumb and really unhelpful and leads to some really weird results where companies are saying company X is a is a tech or a software company when it's really not, or you know, it just gets very arbitrary, right? I mean, what what is Amazon? I mean, of course, it started as an online retailer, but uh, you know, is it is it just purely a tech company or a software company? I mean, of course not. I mean, it's a massive physical logistics operation at the core of it, so uh, it's technology enabled. But this is where it just gets so arbitrary and, and ridiculous. I mean, Align Technologies, uh, Invisalign, as the number four returning stock, is that a Healthcare company is it a consumer-ish kind of company? It's kind of kind of bold. So anyway, when I when I characterized all all fifty of these companies, it was almost a dead even split between companies that were tech or software, at least as their primary designation. Uh, there were thirteen of those. There were ten that would be considered healthcare in some way, shape, or form. There were twelve that would be considered consumer, and a and a whopping fifteen that would be considered industrial. Um, and that was actually the most by number was industrial at 15. And I think if I'd have asked myself at the beginning of this, I would have said probably 25 of them would have been tech or software. And, you know, another 10 or 12 would have been like micro cap uh, biopharmaceutical companies that just did home runs. And, and that really wasn't true. So that, that really kind of surprised me. So uh, anyways, I'll, I'll stop there and open up to you guys for, uh, for any observations or questions, or I can throw out a few more of them. Uh, who was the last of the 50 to get in there? Uh, interestingly enough, the last was Nike um, at a 19.7% compound return, a starting market cap of 16 billion going up to 175. And they had one of the lowest sales growth rates at 8%, but not, there were companies that were lower. Um, again, it looks like the lowest compounded sales growth rate was. Five percent. There were a couple. Uh, Mettler Toledo, which is an industrial company, only grew at five percent. Uh, Aon, another industrial company, AAON, was five uh, percent. There were a few at six or seven. But yeah, Mike Nike's uh, price to sales multiple went from one times to three point six times, which which helped. Did AutoZone make it? It did not. No, must have just missed it. Got it. Yeah, because that one's really interesting as a case study yep, in general, <laughs> sure. right? It is. No, it definitely is. I, I totally agree. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to go. Let's here. I can put it in actually while we're talking. Yeah, because I'll, I'll tell doing. you what I find interesting. I mean, their sales growth was especially low, but they just strung out working capital to retire uh, shares. And perhaps was this market cap oriented or was it total shareholder return that you screened for in Bloomberg? No, it was. Yeah, it's just shareholder return. So again, some of the market caps starting out were as low as uh, definitely a hundred million. Well, like so it was TSR though. So companies who retired a lot of stock uh, theoretically were credited here, and they they still like AutoZone. Sure, if the price went example. up, yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. Yeah, would you have? Were there any what you'd call like the serial uh, cannibals of their own shares in there? Yeah, it's interesting. So the the starting date and ending date must have been just off because Bloomberg has AutoZone as of yesterday at like twenty point two percent compounded over that fifteen year period. So they must have been right there somewhere, which gets to how arbitrary it is to cut this off at fifty, right? Because there were there are a bunch that are basically tied right there at the bottom, right? There's nowhere, there's nobody within 300 basis points of Netflix, but you're within, you know, literally one or two basis points of several down at the bottom of this chart. But Well, um, yeah, that's see. an interesting question. What was the, what was the Kager of number 25 on the list? 25 was Edwards Life Sciences Corp. And that was 
6% a year. So you start bunching up pretty quickly once you get below the top 10, really. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, I mean, in general, it's just really hard to find 20% Kagers over 15 years. And you hear people <laughs> exactly. on Twitter talking about yeah. how like every company oh, yeah. in their portfolio that's is what I mean. going to Kager it's, at 20%. And it's one thing to do it for five years. It's one thing to do it for 15 years. You know, that, that period sort of encapsulates the average life period of a public company, right? Either through failure or acquisition. And so to do it for 15 years is just stunning. And the market has a really hard time pricing uh, high growth, especially high growth that's like accelerating. But, you know, the persistence of growth over a long period of times, I mean, I used to keep, I, I still keep the Mobson base rate book open. Uh, I used to keep mm-hmm. like as a benchmark, you know, no company could grow a decade for, for 20% really, though I think in some ways that might uh, get ripped up in, in the, call it the 2000s playbook. Because there will be some companies that deliver on that, surprisingly enough. Well, I think part of that was was caveated by the starting size or the starting level of sales, right? So on that basis, the only companies that would have really violated that or, or broken new ground would have been Amazon and Apple, right? So Apple was number six. Amazon was number three. They both started from a multi-billion dollar level of sales. Amazon was 10, over 10 billion and Apple was almost 20 billion. And they both grew sales 29 and 21% compounded respectively over that 15-year period. Pretty much everybody else on the list started as a relatively small company, right? I mean, the next biggest company after that would have been Sherwin-Williams or Nike, I guess. Nike and Sherwin-Williams were really the only other two. Right. And increasingly, you see companies uh, stay private longer. So like the runway to get those opportunities is even less today. I mean, you think back to Facebook's IPO, right? Like yeah, even they're as nowhere far to be seen. As, yeah, it's impossible. I guess they at, came at public scale. too late for this too, but that's true. Yeah. Yeah, well, too late, but they were so big by the time they came public. Look at some of the, the IPOs today, even like Coinbase, uh, UiPath, both within the last week. I mean, these are like really big businesses to grow 20% Kager from here requires something like truly extraordinary. Yep. Yeah. So the takeaways I had from this were that starting size and starting price are both going to be important and then if you were to if you were to map these companies you know with kind of the upside down chart where you looked at how far below their all-time high they were you would have seen some just vicious drawdowns i mean it would be fascinating to know how many insiders um, that that how many insiders that own the company today didn't get washed out along the way along the 15 mm. years right i mean yep. i bet I bet very, very few people were able to hold on this whole time. And if you could, I mean, this is just career-making generational kind of wealth that you can that you can generate by by holding on to these companies. And then the, the third thing that jumped out was that yes, there were some like some companies where I, I, I highlighted about half of them where I should have been able to know better. Some relatively simple businesses like Domino's number 18, Chipotle, number 19, Trex, number 20, Decker's Outdoors, you know, forget about Netflix and Amazon. I mean, unbelievable businesses that yes, I should have been able to figure out, but there's some downright boring businesses in here that are not above anybody's, uh, you know, level of comprehension. Old Dominion Freightline, right? Literally a (laughs) trucking and logistics company is number 13 on the list at a 25% return over 15 years with only a 9% growth rate. And, Were they a leveraged yeah, stub in the beginning or something? They had to have had some leverage on there. I'd have to go back and look. That's a good question. But the the sales multiple went from under one to over six, <laughs> which, <laughs> which helps. That'll do it, right? Yeah, that'll do it. So where would you have washed out? I mean, I personally, I don't know that I would have stuck around that whole time, right? I would have seen it as too expensive or slowing down or God only knows, right? And uh, it just, all you had to do was buy a good business at a good price and sit tight. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, I I struggle with these questions along the way too because you could start with something. I mean, when I bought Roku, I thought I was paying three times one year out platform sales, and then it was trading at thirty times total sales in the last year. Right? Um, that obviously says it's been it's been a good one, but like it's it's hard. It's like a very different business proposition and wager. Um, so I, I don't love the word wager there, but I think it's an, it's it expresses what I'm getting at. Um, it's hard to know like how to think about uh, what the forward return prospects are from different levels. 
I actually do find price to sales like really interesting um, and important and underrated as a metric insofar as analyzing growth companies go. I, what I like to use price to sales for is backing into an implied out your margin expectation. And that could be very helpful in informing um, your research and to what extent you think that margin structure is possible. Um, and if the implied market structure by price to sales um, is actually you know, too low for what you think, that's a good signal that you have an opportunity to get a rising uh, price to sales um, you know, multiple expansion along the way. Um, though it Agreed. obviously requires... Uh, go ahead, sorry. Oh, it's good. I was agreeing with you. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, I mean, there are other ways to kind of like come at the same problem. You're obviously talking about a company with good growth prospects and uh, operating leverage that we were talking about above, but you could get a very specific number out of it that's saying like, this is the hurdle that I need to triangulate against. Like, is it possible? Um, and that's valuable. Yeah. yeah, I agree. It is very valuable. And I think where that kind of analysis gets abused is when people are using it as a pricing exercise rally rather than like a starting point for evaluation process. So in a pricing exercise, somebody says, oh, I'm going to slap a 10 times sales multiple on this thing because that's what other companies get. And so that's what this hmm. should get rather than just saying like, no, no, this is where this is, you know, this is an insight into what could be possible in the future and what they might grow into, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas it, it can be very valuable. And, and again, it can also be a guidepost, right? I mean, again, if you're buying something above 10 times sales, um, it, it, it means you have to be even more right than usual, right? It's a high bar. It's a very high bar. So it's a good, I think it's a good framing tool. Yeah. I think it's fascinating to think about, uh, would you have held on and, and, you know, I have to admit, I, I'd have a really hard time uh, holding on, um, in a lot of those cases, I think for you know valuation for me would be the biggest reason to not hold on. I think you know Elliot, you talk about uh, Roku at thirty times uh, sales. Yeah, I mean it's it's a really tough one because you basically can take that money and potentially put it into something that you feel just as strongly about that's at a much lower multiple of sales. Um, so. We do always have these trade-offs and opportunity costs, and um, I think with hindsight, um, when you look at some of these biggest winners, you say, "Well, yeah, of course, someone should have held on." But I think, you know, ex ante, it's really difficult um, to make that case a lot of the time. Um, and you know, some of those uh, winners on the list, I, I never would have guessed. Uh, you know, like a Domino's Pizza. I mean. Just, just I remember their product quality would have said, you know, there was, there was like in the early days of YouTube, there were like YouTube videos posted showing like what the folks do behind the scenes to those pizzas. I mean, um, you know, it's just, it's just really hard, I think, to, um, to, to figure this out uh, before the fact. Um, and then, you know, just, I think, it's also a commentary on on the time we've been through in the markets. Uh, what you mentioned, Phil, about um, almost all of these companies having seen um, multiple expansion, where actually, as your market cap grows, um, you should see multiple contraction. Um, so you know when when you have uh, an Amazon, I think Phil, you mentioned going from like a 16 billion market cap to 1.6 trillion, and you still have multiple expansion to where today the the price to sales is higher than it was back then. It's um, you know that that's that really has to line up with with a huge bull market, and uh, if you don't have that underlying a uh, tailwind a lot of these things are going to look different. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's what's so amazing is you you had this unbelievable tailwind. And again, that's why when you look at the numbers, I mean, 10% on the S&P 500 and almost 16% on the NASDAQ for 15 years is like an unbelievable generational tailwind. And yet the volatility along the way was crazy, right? I mean, maybe not so much for Amazon, but they certainly had some volatility. We had two 
generational crises jammed in there. And yet you still had start to finish multiple expansion in a pretty dramatic way. I mean, to your point, you now have a company with a $2 trillion market cap like Apple, where the the price to sales multiple more than doubled. It's not like Apple was unknown back then. A lot about the company's changed and it went from big to gigantic, right? And to your point, the multiple went way up and we'll have to see. I mean, it was obviously deserved in large part, but what it means about the future is the fascinating part. All right. Well, fascinating discussion, guys, as always. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening as well. See you all next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.